Hi there. Welcome to How Did They Get There? I'm your host, John Penn. And um, today I'm excited to talk to my guest, Selena Fillinger. And I I really got to know her work. I think the the portal in was POTUS. So that was the, the play that she wrote, which I saw last year. I think I saw it twice, actually. The first time uh, was with Rachel as Stephanie. And the second, uh, that was when Anita was on, actually. Man, time flies. I feel like I just talked to her. Uh, but yeah, so that's that's kind of what led me to the uh, like further exploration of Selena's work. But POTUS, um, or Behind Every Great Dumbass, or Seven Women Trying to Keep Him Alive. That's the full title. I like it. I like the full title. I like when you have a short title and then a colon and a longer title. I think it makes it cool. It's like Birdman. So I saw the play. Uh, you know, when I saw it, it was wild. Seeing the cast and... Rachel Dratch, you know, and, and everybody um, seemed to really get the vision. And when I say everybody, I mean like the cast. Um, and that's cool, man. I like seeing that. And the audience was totally into it. So many laughs, tons of jokes, but not overbearing. And I like that a lot. You know, I kept hearing that POTUS is a farce over and over again. And I wanted to figure out like what exactly that means. Well, that's that's something that I actually asked her in her conversation. I mean, I I... I've heard it categorized as that, but I wanted to figure out like what her take was. And then I should mention that as I, you know, after POTUS and I, as I was learning more about her work, I mean, I came across uh, Faceless, which is a play that she wrote and also Something Clean. And both of them like really resonated for me. I mean, I, uh, I like dark stuff and I think it's cool when humor is employed or deployed or placed in there. Uh, not necessarily to deflect tension or to, you know, take things down when things get heavy, but more to be um, semblant. And this is what she said, too, of just how how communication happens in the real world. I mean, how often do you come across a truly humorless moment? Um, I mean, even like personal experience in, in psychiatry and all the stuff that I've done, I always come across humor and I think that's important. It's like a, it's an important vein to have in there so you can tap into it when times get kind of dark. Her um, plays have really been um, developed. They've premiered at a bunch of different theaters across the country. I mean, if you look at her, you know, if you look at her canon, uh, it's it's quite remarkable. And, um, you know, tons of awards, tons of nominations, like super well-deserved. And I mean, POTUS, where do you even start with that. I mean, it premiered on Broadway in uh, 2022. I think it was April, uh, maybe early May. And, you know, uh, Susan Stroman, who's a Broadway legend, uh, directed it. I mean, you have a great cast, Julianne Huff, which, who was really interesting to see in this. Uh, Julie White, Vanessa Williams, you may have heard of her, uh, Rachel Dratch, like really all-star cast, um, had all their ingredients to do great things and it really did i think it hit the zeitgeist um you know in theater and rachel dratch and julie white were both nominated for um you know tony's as well so that's that's cool um i like i like when uh great work is you know um when it gets attention and, and i think that's really deserved in her case and as if her schedule wasn't hectic enough you know being at the helm of a big broadway play with this cast she uh was also tapped around that time to write for the morning show um, and she wrote for you know season three which I'm, I'm really excited to see that in her conversation we talked about her upbringing in Oregon 
we um which is a great part of the country by the way as you as you probably know um we also talked about northwestern uh the seeds that planted an influence uh in terms of her desire to act and that's really what you know she is an actress and and she um but then she also like started writing and we talked about that and like how does that interest develop um you know as well you know something clean faceless and both of those uh as well as potas i believe you can find uh you can retrieve that's the word that i'm going to use through uh concord theatricals i think they're published through um you know samuel french so that's that's something um uh, one way to get a portal in uh season three of the morning show which stars jennifer aniston reese witherspoon mark duplass and billy crudup is going to premiere in 2023 uh sometime a release date has not been announced but keep your eyes peeled for that so yeah i gleaned a lot from this and i think it's kind of clear what i gleaned in the interview but one thing was um i think just the vitality of theater and how important it is uh to see a production so if you haven't uh i recommend it you can see a broadway production but you can also go off broadway there are many places in New York and in other, um, you know, areas you can find regional theater as well um, in the country. So I really encourage you to do that. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. I think so. I think we'll figure it out probably on the yeah on the fly yeah let's do it on the fly i like that all right so uh so selena so thanks for being here um thank you for having me yeah no of course and uh i feel like i feel fairly i feel quite as the word that i'm going to use familiar with your work um i think i, f- I feel like i oh. yeah i mean i i feel like i um <laughs> yeah well i feel like the familiarity i feel like it started with potus because I mean, I live in New York, and that came on Broadway. But let me ask you about that. So it's been because uh, it's been almost a year since that premiered, right? Uh, so does it does it feel like that? Like, does it feel like a year has gone by since that experience? Oh man, no, definitely not. Um, I mean, it was just like uh, such a wild year for me on so many levels, and I was so. Um, you know, sleep deprived and like, you know, time, time just moved really weirdly that year in general. Um, and then I think because it was all moving so fast and there was so much happening for me and in the world and everything at that time, when, when it was over, it took me almost an equal amount of time to process that whole experience. Um, because I was, I was moving too fast in the middle to really process while I was in the middle. You were sleep deprived because of that. Would you, or were there other things too? No, I was sleep deprived because, um, because I was in a writer's room in LA Mm. that was at the same time. And I was taking, there was about a month a month and a half of overlap between the POTUS rehearsals and my writer's room. And so I was doing Mondays and Mondays through Fridays in LA and then taking red eyes on Friday nights and going to New York and being in rehearsals Saturdays and Sundays. Um, so that's, that is not how to be clear. That is not how I operate <laughs> normally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and I, really need my sleep and mm. <laughs> I really prioritize that and I don't at all buy into the whole like uh you know artists work yeah. at all hour like that yeah. hustle like I don't buy into that at all 
and uh, want to be on record saying that. Um, that said, they were both kind of um, unique and uh, extraordinary opportunities. And I sort of said yes to one and then the other one came up and I was, <laughs> I just knew I needed to do both. And so I was like, I can do this for, yeah. it's like, it's basically like yeah. four weeks. I can do this. And, uh, and what is youth for if not mm. red eyes? <laughs> you know, I yeah. never I never really did a, a bunch of those other things that a lot of people do in their early twenties where, you know, you pull all nighters and, you like know, go to like, Oh yeah. I thought you were going to say like going to like frat parties and stuff like that, but that too didn't yeah. do that that much either. I yeah. think I went to one. So I never did a lot of that stuff. Um, and so I said, okay, I saved it up for this. I can do this. Um, and it was hard, uh, obviously. Yeah. How are you? How are you at like compartmentalizing stuff like that? Like, are you able to like do like work on one job or one experience and then go to the next thing, take the red eye to New York and then like resume? Or is it kind of a different, is it a transition that you have to like do each time? Um, it's not the way in which I would say I do my best work. Um, but yeah, I was impressed with myself for my ability to you know, be in the room. First of all, they were very different types of writing. And in the room, I was not, you know, the writer's room, I was not a showrunner or anything. I was just a, a writer in the room. So my job was to support the other writers and to generate story and to sort of pitch, but mostly be taking, you know, instruction. And so it's a very different brain than when you're like the one that's trying to solve all the answer, you know, solve yeah. all the questions. Um, so I think that helped. And they're also just very different mediums and very different genres and all that stuff. I think having that separation was good. I mean, it was just hard, but there was something um, I was proud of myself and impressed with myself that I could walk out of the room, go to the airport, crank out a rewrite, you know, at the airport, get on, yeah. sleep for a few hours, get to the thing, like listen to the feedback from the actors, do another rewrite, sleep on Sunday. You know, it was definitely more than I thought I could do. And I think, I, I have always traveled for my work yeah. and I try to stay pretty um, not precious about it. Try to be able to work under most circumstances and stuff like that, as opposed to being like, I have my one pen and yeah. my one desk and I have to be in this place. Um, I try to do that, but this was a whole nother level. And it was, it was um, cool and affirming to know that I could, could do that. And I think I became a better writer or at least a, even just a more flexible person and just being, mm. being, um, yeah, you know, like I, I learned, to, yeah, I learned a lot charge. from it. Sorry, Do what was that? No, I was just saying, yeah, like you have this ability to take charge. It seemed like that, I mean, develops creatively, but I guess, I don't know about creatively, but at least professionally, but do you, do you find that you have, like, do you have a hard time saying no to things in general? Or is that, uh, is that not something that you like struggle with? I have a hard time saying no to certain things. I think um, I have a hard time saying no when I feel that people really want me, you know, when yeah. I feel that I would be disappointing people who I care about. Um, yeah. And I have a hard time saying no, saying no. I, I don't have a hard time saying no if I know that it's not the right project for me. Right. Um because I genuinely don't think it is in anyone's best interest for me to be working on something that is not right for me. Yeah. Um, but with POTUS, you know, that was supposed to go up actually before the pandemic. Oh, really? And then the pandemic hit and it, you know, of course got postponed. Yeah. And I had worked, I had written it so many years earlier and just 
carried that play for a long time and a lot of regional theaters didn't want to do it um, when I wrote it. And so to have this opportunity and for it to be on Broadway, it was like, you know, it was more than I had ever dreamed of. And so I knew that one I wasn't going to turn down. And then to be in this writer's room, it was such a good learning experience. I had never been in a writer's room and I knew that it was going to teach me so much. And um, it was a show that I knew was going to be going to air, yeah. which is not a given. Yeah. So yeah, both of those things were, were they just, yeah. And I said yes to the writer's room. And then a couple of days later, I found out that we got a theater for POTUS. <laughs> oh man, and, that's wild. And my team said, you know, we can do this. Yeah. There's a way to do this, yeah. but it, it may hurt. You, know? you might be sleep deprived, but yeah, I guess that. And then that other, the writer's room, that's the morning show, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about, let's talk about both of those. But where'd you, uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Oregon. Oh, not like Portland? Eugene, actually. Was it super, uh, was it like, I just think of Nike. Was it super green and lush and like really uh, awesome? Yes. I mean, it was very green. It was very lush. I took all of it for granted when I was growing up and it was only after I left that I realized how precious it was. It was a very special place to grow up um, because, in part because of the nature. And it was also just a very um, artistic community. And um, my family is very artistic. And so I was just exposed to a lot of art and culture while being, I think, protected from a lot of mainstream industry nonsense. Yeah. You know, um, I think there's some kids who, you know, maybe grow up in LA or something who, you know, know the word green light so early. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I just didn't, I didn't think that way. I wasn't exposed to any of that. I was just exposed to really good art and interesting people who lived close to the earth. And, um, I played a lot of pretend and I climbed a lot of trees and I think a lot of my creative impulses were fostered by my parents. And then because it was a small community, I was able to afford to do, you know, these things. I went to a good public school that had like a good arts program. And um, so all that stuff were these, these privileges that um, I think really protected me. And yeah, Nike's definitely a big part of Eugene. Well, your family's, your family's into the arts. So like, what's their, what are their mediums? So my dad's an architect. um, And so he's a visual, his, he's a beautiful visual artist. Um, I think all of my, my, um, both my parents and my brother are all incredible visual artists in different Mm. ways. Um, My dad is the one who does it, you know, professionally as in being an, an architect. My mom is a LCSW. She's a licensed clinical social worker, oh, wow. but she's just a very creative person. So, um, you know, a visual artist as well as a, as well as, you know, she's done pottery and, and she just makes beautiful meals and beautiful spaces oh, and things yeah. like that. So I just think there, I grew up with a lot of appreciation for beauty. My brother you know, majored in art. Uh, he's a firefighter and a paramedic now, but oh, wow. you know, he's like a very, they're all just, you know, artistic people, um, in different ways. And I was just exposed to theater and dance and music and all that stuff pretty, pretty early. Um, Man, yeah. that's interesting that uh, he's a paramedic. I honestly, when I, before I met you and we've, we've met for, I think I've known you for about 11 minutes now. I thought that you were actually from Chicago reading uh, Faceless because, oh, yeah. um, because her dad, like Susie, right? That character, isn't her dad a uh, paramedic? 
So that was like, that was something that I was always thinking about, but that's interesting that you draw from that. So you're growing up in like a really artistic um, household. I mean, was, was you, and you weren't like your first word, um, you know, as a baby wasn't like showrunner or a green light, right? You were like really <laughs> exposed to like the cool, uh, I guess, Oregonian landscape. When does, when does the arts kind of, when does that pick up for you? I mean, what kind of a kid were you? What kind of a kid was I? Um, were you like yeah, spunky? Were you into like music? Yeah, I, 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 art was always there. I was writing and I was writing as soon as I was reading and, oh, and drawing a lot and, yeah. uh, you know, um, and I, and playing a lot of pretend, which is just early storytelling. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I was a good student and, um, like clean cut, I guess is what you would say. Do you have a lot um, of friends? I did. I, I'm still good friends with a lot of the people that I grew nice. up with. We stayed really close. Um, I think the, I was always a very verbose and I think I was super, super petite and my mom's really petite. And so I think because of that, people always thought I was younger or underestimated me or talked down to me. And so I learned really early to speak in an adult voice and articulate um, my thoughts because, right. you know, um, people would sometimes assume I was younger than I was mm. and things like that. So I think I was a pretty like verbose yeah. kid pretty early. And I think that was helped by the fact that my parents always, you know, spoke to me like an adult, you know, they didn't right. use baby talk and I was invited to be at tables full of adults talking. And so, um, I was around, I was around that. I mean, I think it is an interesting thing. People read my work and they often assume that I'm somehow related or connected to the young female characters in my work when usually it's not like that. Um, no, I, I didn't I, think, I wouldn't think of you as like Susie or anything. I no, just, no, no, uh, I know, yeah, but like, yeah, I know what you mean. I, it is a thing where I think, I remember someone saying, I think, I didn't read the reviews. I'd never read the reviews of any of my yeah. work. Um, but somebody said something about how someone repeated to me that someone said something about like, you can tell that these characters are known to her and are familiar to her about Faceless. Oh, and yeah. Thought, that is so funny. Yeah. I don't know anyone like Susie and I don't know anyone like her father. I imagined what it would be to be in that place. And, you know, I, once I realized he was a paramedic, I asked my brother a couple of things about the business, but I didn't, um, you know, he didn't feel in conversation with my brother in any way. Um, yeah. But there was something about like, you know, being in Chicago and being around a certain type of blue collar man in Chicago. Yeah, like very like patriotic American. Yeah, that yeah. was interesting to me. Um, someone who's who people would think of as being like a defender of the small, you know what I mean? What about Claire, though? Do you see any parallels between, you know, you and Claire? Like maybe a sensibility thing or something like definitely. that? Definitely. I think um, I definitely put a lot of myself into Claire. I mean, honestly, I think that play is a is a tricky one for me to be able to speak objectively about. I'm not sure if it is um, indicative of the rest of my writing or the rest of my voice. I was oh, really? very young and I think I took in way more notes than like more notes than I necessarily agreed with. And, and, you know, it was just very much a time capsule of where I was at yeah. then. And I yeah. also, with that play, I did not initially expect anybody to really see that on a big scale. It started as an independent study, oh, wow. like academic thing. So I was challenging myself to write this really ambitious piece. And then 
when it became a professional production, there were things where I would have been like, whoa, this is the first time people are encountering me and there's a lot here. And, oh, yeah. um, but that character, Claire, there is something about her ambition yeah. and her hunger mm-hmm. and her, um, you know, I've never identified, there's a lot of characters, I think, especially in TV, like millennial women who are kind of, you know, had their really messy twenties and oh, yeah. are always sort of, um, kind of, you know, takes a while to find themselves. Yeah, and just like waffling like, through life. Yeah. Yeah. Or just, um, or just feeling kind of, um, feeling kind of like apathetic about certain things. Mm. I just never really identified with those characters. Yeah. Like I was always someone who wanted so much, maybe too much and cared so much, probably too much. And um, yeah. there was something about Claire that I, I think the way she has these like real intention to want to change the world and like the pain that she feels when she can't, I guess I connected to that part, but I connect to all my characters. It's just, I think I put my, some of my thought, I just, I bury a lot of myself in things. So it's people would not know that that is something I believe. Interesting. And I often put them in people that don't look at all like me. Um, It's almost like non, like unidentifiable in some ways. Yeah. I mean, it's just inevitable. It's coming out of me. So so much of what I think is going to come out, but I'm also just from a craft point of view going, okay, well, what would this person think, you know? And, and so trying to build a character that way. So you're drawing, you're reading, and then you're writing. So then what was the, what would, what, what do you think the first thing, um, what was the first thing that you wrote that you were like, man, like I want to do this, or I think this is really cool. I want to keep doing it. Like what, what was the thing that you felt you were you um maybe hit the zeitgeist in terms of how you thought about writing and how you thought about it as a craft versus just like doing something for i don't know pleasure yeah um i was also dancing Mm. um and i was also um you know playing the clarinet pretty early and Mm. and um when i was in school i started being in plays so I i was doing that too and i think acting was my way into theater which was my way into writing um Mm. so I identified as an actor long before I identified as a writer. Oh, wow. I always was writing, but um, I, it was just something I did for myself. It didn't occur to me that there was like a craft in it besides my own pleasure. Um, when I was, after I was bat mitzvah, I think I wrote like a screenplay about some girls like bat mitzvah experience. Yeah. Um, it was so silly. And then um, when I was a teenager, I started working on some, noir thriller novel that I never finished and to this day my mom tells me I have to finish it because she's very invested in what happened to those characters and she wants to know how it ends yeah what do you what was the what was the who planted the seed or what planted the seed for acting uh I just always loved it I think the first play I was ever in was in uh first grade or no I was in second grade and we were all crayons at a color factory Mm. um and so that's when I started doing it and then um, in fifth grade, they did a version of Emperor's New Clothes, and I was one of the swindlers. Okay. Um, I was just always doing it, and I was dancing. So I think performing was early on. Um, do you still dance and, uh, and play the clarinet and like do those things or no? I don't play the clarinet. Um, I would like to learn how to sing, and I would like to learn how to play percussion. I think I chose clarinet because I wanted to play saxophone, but I was so small. They told me that I should start on clarinet. Hmm. Um, 
But if I could do it over again, I would choose percussion. Yeah. I, I I worked at clarinet really hard, but I never felt very good at it. And it never came very easily to me. I was always much more drawn to acting. I started doing it intensely in the, in, in high school, but um, being in plays and, you know, competing with monologues and things. But um, yeah, I think it wasn't until college when I took an intro to playwriting class that um, it occurred to me that it was something I could do. What, pl- what plays were you doing in high school? The first, Any, like notable. Yeah. The first play that I was in, in high school was, um, up by Bridget Carpenter. Okay. I don't know if you know her. I think it premiered at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, actually. Mm. But um, I was I played a pregnant sixteen year old. Oh wow! And I was in. I played Lady Macbeth in Macbeth, mm. and I was Rosalind in As You Like It. Wow! And um, there were a few other things. That was in my so senior years. It's like Shakespeare. A lot of that. Yeah, my senior year yeah. is a fair amount of. Shakespeare, yeah. So then, um, so is the what's the plan? Kind of, I guess, in high school and coming out of it. I mean, do you at that point? I mean, you were you were talking about writing and how that kind of started to emerge. You know, I guess more in college. So what? I guess, um, like, what did you want to do after high school? Where'd you go to college? I went to Northwestern. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Chicago. So Chicago, yeah. I do think I'm very influenced by the places that I'm in. I think I have written usually. I usually end up setting a place in the place that I'm in at some point, but um, yeah, I thought I was going to be an actor um, and I still identify as a performer. Yeah. Um, but I, I was, it was really, I think, well, the Oregon Shakespeare festival, I don't know. Where are you from? Oh, uh, where am I from? I, I have a hard time answering this because I moved like every year when I was a kid, oh, but wow. I, when people ask me that, I think um, the longest place that I lived was actually in Utah in Salt Lake city. I lived oh, there for like 10 years. A very yeah. beautiful place. Beautiful in some ways, not so. Yeah, nice. I mean, nature wise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, nature wise is great. Have you ever been? I've just driven through it mm. and I was so in awe of the mountain, um, yeah. the mountains there. But um, yeah, so the Oregon Shakespeare Festival is this big theater festival in yeah. Oregon. And, and it was about a three hour drive from where I grew up. And I, when I was 16, I went to something called the Oregon Shakespeare Festival Summer Seminar for Juniors, which was a two week uh, camp, basically. Mm. And they, you see all the shows that are going on in the festival and you work with a lot of the actors and the people working there. And yeah. um, I think it was a few things. I had always thought I was going to growing up I thought I was going to go into politics at some point oh, um, really? yeah I I was very much well for years I was like I'm going to be the president <laughs> you got um, pretty close right pretty close <laughs> 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 maybe something I mean and you then got I thought, all the perks of being the president yeah exactly the, yeah. but then I thought maybe like law um or speech writing honestly I'm still interested in speech writing if any uh like far left progressives are looking for a speech writer. Like yeah, I will be there. Well, that, uh, that Jay Carson on your show, wasn't he, doesn't he have a big like political background? I believe. I mean, I know he's oh, for the morning show. Yeah. 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 I wasn't working with him. I think he was the creator, but he's not, he oh. wasn't the showrunner. And my year was oh. a whole new group of writers and a new showrunner oh, for the first two seasons. Um, but so, so yeah, I think, I think because I grew up with um, a fair amount of sort of like financial anxiety in my family that mm. I financial stability was really important to me. And so I always 
was like, I love acting. I love theater. I'm not going to pursue. I'm too practical for that. I'm too practical for that. And I think when I went to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, I saw all these working actors who, you know, they weren't living large, but they were doing what they loved and they were living these stable lives. And I was so blown away by the work I was seeing. And there was just yeah, I was very swept up in it. And I remember calling my parents, just crying, going, like, I think I have to pursue acting. And they were, <laughs> they said, yes, we know, yeah. you know, exactly, <laughs> they, yeah. they had long known that, you know. Um, and so I, I went to Northwestern um, and uh, entered as an actor. And then I took intro to playwriting and ended up doing the playwriting track and the acting track simultaneously. And um my whole my senior year I'd exhausted a lot of the uh you know playwriting I'd done like the Mm -hmm. playwriting festivals and things already in the in the department so my playwriting teacher partnered me with a local theater for what she called a working commission Mm -hmm. um and the idea was to simulate what it would be like if a professional theater were to commission you and it was just supposed to culminate in a staged reading and no one was getting paid you know But so I wrote the play for this artistic director at this local theater. um, And he told me he wanted to put it in his next year's season. And, you know, that really changed my life. The the, you know, the trajectory of my career, it very much launched, launched me because then I was being professionally produced at a regional Chicago theater when I was 22, like six months after I graduated. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, intense and awesome and hard and um i learned a lot very quickly so that's why i say like that play faceless was that play and and it was just the circumstances were so um intense and unexpected and i you know all that stuff that um and i was just so new out of school like i think my voice then was still so influenced by my mentors and it took me a little time after that to Mm. um you know, just learn my own voice. I think that's true for, for any writers. It took me a while to learn my own voice. And I had to sort of let go of, I think you work and work, and, for me, you work and work and work to get the craft so that then you can let go more and more of the craft yeah. and move more and more to instinct sure. is, is how, for me, my trajectory has been. Like learning all the craft so that I can release and just in, increasingly move towards the um, more magical side of the process oh, yeah. for me. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that definitely makes sense. Wait, so in terms of that play, because I mean that's a pretty uh, gnarly topic. I mean to go into uh, uh, faceless. Uh, you talk about that uh, the title. I think you mentioned it in like the first page that the the title is like a it's a reference to the inhumanity of terrorism, but not. It's not about being a description of women that wear headscarves. So like, what about that topic, um, you know, intrigued you enough to actually like write a play about it? What was the um, the beginnings of that? Yeah, I, I mean, I read an article about this white girl who was um, arrested on the tarmac boarding a plane to go to Syria. And, um, you know, I graduated in 2016. So I graduated when Trump was you know, Mm. getting elected. And I was just, there was just so much like xenophobic and racist language that was um, so present. And here there was this example of this white girl who was being uh, radicalized, who was not 
She did not fit the description of all these people that were right. being told on, were, we were being told on the internet and on television screens to fear. And this person was to me, this person was, you know, um, and ex- she was, she got radicalized and she, and yeah. their question of, of, I'm not interested in damning someone one way or the other, but I think it's important for us to be reminded of, of what is, the cost and consequences and what is the factor. And to me, her whiteness was such a part of what allowed her to be manipulated because that sort of whiteness that allows you to, allows you to not see things um, because you you go through a life and you're protected from having to see certain things that people who are not white are, you know, have to encounter so early on. And, and, um, you know, now I think I have such a, a, a better so, you know, obviously still needs a lot of work, but a better understanding of whiteness and my own whiteness. And so now, of course, you know, I would sort of write things a little bit differently with that play. Mm-hmm. But that was what I was interested in. Like this girl was so similar to me in age and she grew up in Colorado. So why did her life go that way? And mine didn't. And then just what the cost of that is on people's lives. And, yeah. and that's how the Claire character was born. But it, to me, I was just, you know, I was going out into adulthood. I was leaving college. I was going out into adulthood at the same time that Trump was taking office after yeah. Obama. And right. I was, did not know how to be a person in this world or how to be a, a person who and I had all this just like anger and, and yeah. confusion about the concepts of justice and what my country was um, and was, you know, kind of coming out of my own white privileged bubble in a lot of ways. So I think that was ultimately what led me to take on the, the play and, and the character, the play is called faceless because there's a, a disembodied voice that I refer to in the play as mm. a faceless man. Right. But um but yeah, I think people often misunderstood that. And often when they do the play, they put a picture of a woman in a hijab on the cover of the poster yeah. underneath the word faceless. And I'm always going, no, it's not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that makes it sound like I'm saying that women who wear hijabs are faceless. That's not what I'm saying, you know? So, yeah. um, you know, that's why I added that note at some point. And yeah. I don't know if it made a difference. At some no, point, I you did. just have it's out in the world no it, it definitely did um yeah seeing those conversations between i mean Susie and the faceless and pretty gripping because it's uh you just see the you you tap into like the mindset of that manipulation which is so dark uh but then there's also even in that and then also um you know something clean which i also read i mean there seems to be like this um a lot of humor like um it's do you find that that's uh that's kind of you put that in there to like ease tension a little bit or do you do you find that it just helps maybe tell more of the story from the characters perspectives and how they see the world um you know than otherwise without it i mean what would you think the decision to you know employ humor is yeah i rarely actually think about deploying humor it's yeah. something that happens naturally just because i think when you're living in a world and and humans are nuanced and copy- complicated and flawed inevitably they're funny yeah. <laughs> um and so i just think it's it's so rare in the world that there's actually a humorless, a fully humorless situation. And sometimes it's really, 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 really dark. And sometimes you shouldn't laugh, but most of the time, like being a human is so absurd that there are really funny aspects of it. So I, I actually rarely think about it until someone is working on my play and goes, you know, this is kind of fun. Is it okay if we play this joke, you know? And I'm going, yes, please, please, yeah. you know? Um, 
like with something clean, this is actually like a really important thing to me in order for the play to work. There has to be a lightness. I think the, the production always fails the second that, you know, the director, the actors become hyper aware that they are in the rape play. Oh, you know, if they yeah. think that they are in the rape play, then it's yeah. kind of, um, there's just this sorrow and this som somber feeling that is kind of hard, that makes it kind of unwatchable. Yeah. And so I think just, I think people, especially when they are in tragedy are often very funny and yeah. that's not disrespectful. That's, that's life force, you know? So, um, yeah, I think it definitely comes. I mean, I like to laugh and I mm -hmm. just think a lot of things in the world are funny. So I think that goes into my work without me thinking about it. Um, but certainly of course it also is, is a bit of a craft because it a tactic because I, it helps, you know, helps the medicine go down if you're dealing with a uh, tricky subject matter. Oh yeah. No, I think you, and I think you clarify that, um, Maybe in a similar way, or maybe a little bit different, and something clean because you say that you talk about like at the beginning, you talk about run-on sentences and how they should run on um, because like they they have to run on. They are supposed to because they're like misguided. There are these misguided attempts to ease tension, right? And I think that's true. Like even when you um, like in my in psychiatry, I mean, there's you have to laugh. If you don't, then you're just gonna go crazy. Um, I guess that's the wrong thing to say. But uh, so in terms of that, how did you were you because you uh, were you happy with how faceless turned out? I mean, you said that there were maybe some things that uh, in hindsight you might do differently, or, or maybe just based on the notes, some of the notes that you got. But are you? I mean, how did you feel about that when it came out in Chicago? Yeah, I mean, I think the the actors were wonderful the direction was wonderful the yeah. theater was so generous you know all of those things were ultimately positive things i think i it's more that i i was in such a point of transition mm. and i didn't know yet how to be a leader in the room yeah. um and i and so because of that like this this is me not pointing fingers at anyone yeah, yeah. this is me just uh, just sort of taking responsibility i sure. was so riddled with imposter syndrome that I didn't necessarily know how to be clear with myself and with others. And so, um, you know, I inevitably just felt complicated, but it was, it was the actors and everyone I worked with were so beautiful and yeah. loving. And, um, I was very grateful to everybody who worked on it for holding this piece that was ambitious and dark. Um, and, and taking a chance on me when I was completely untested and I was learning in front of everybody. Yeah. Um, so that part was all very positive. Um, but it was more just sort of a frustration with myself for not figuring out how, how to articulate exactly what I wanted to in the play. And then also, um, you know, sometimes feeling like I wasn't brave enough to, or things like that, you know, just, growing up <laughs> yeah i think that's i think that's fair and also part of uh being a human right humanity so then uh so coming from that well i guess that's another thing like um that clara character i mean that's she is a woman that's iranian and french how do you think about do you think about casting as you're writing or do you think more about the story and the characters without necessarily thinking about like who's going to play this part yes i i I don't think I ever, I mean, 
now a little bit more so with TV and film because sometimes actors are attached to projects. So now I think more about writing for specific people, but I'm always trying to, well, I'm always thinking about representation. Um, So I'm always trying to think about how to make it as castable as possible in a variety of places and, and um, you know, make it very, make it castable in a diverse way in a, as many different like communities as possible so that I'm giving opportunities that are juicy, meaty roles to um, people of color, people yeah. of different ages, um, people of different, you know, body types. That That is, I think, a hugely important thing. And I also just think it informs character so much. Um, I've gone back and forth. I think earlier I used to sort of think more about kind of like writing parts that anybody could play being one of the best ways to diversify mm. the theater. But then there's a problem with that because if it's, if it, at least if it's realism and takes yeah. place in contemporary day, it's, I don't know how to actually separate people's. It shouldn't be a, a part that can be one size fits all because sure. people's intersecting identities yeah. shape who they are as characters. Mm. So you know, if you can write a character and that it could be played by like, you know, a masked queer person and or a black person or a like white woman that it's yeah. like your character might not be very specific <laughs> yeah, if yeah. it could just be like a one size fits sure. all thing. So that's something I'm always trying to figure out, you know, with POTUS. Mm. I wanted to be able to cast a really wide range of people in it. And so some of the characters are like a little bit more one size fits all. But even in that case, and, you know, I write the notes in it, like, just know that if like this could be cast this way, it could be cast this yeah. way because their race is not totally specified. But the language, the jokes will hit differently if like a white woman is saying this right. to, you know, an Arab woman or if an Asian woman is saying this to a black woman, like these things will hit differently. Yeah. So, you know, I don't have a across the board rule about how I do this or how I build characters, but it is something I think about so much and trying to figure out what is respectful, what is not my place, what is helpful to the story, what is something that maybe is a little bit problematic, but does also like push push the conversation forward mm-hmm. um, in a way that I think is maybe important. And can I do that in a nuanced and careful way? So yeah, I'm always trying to you know, do well by people and do well by the theater and do well by my characters. And I think about it a lot. Um, but there's so many ways to get it wrong. And, and I do sometimes. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the ways that I've seen, I think you've, I think you've gotten it right. I think you've nailed it. But (laughs) in terms of, um, what about, when did you, something clean that was in 2019, right? In New York. That's when it opened. Yeah. yeah. So when did you write that? Was that, uh, was that, I guess, was that after faceless or so I was commissioned for a reading series in um, in Chicago for this theater, Sideshow Theater, around the same time that Northlight Theater, where Faceless went up, asked, I like commissioned me. Okay. Um, so Faceless was publicly kind of commissioned first, but I was also kind of commissioned by Something Clean for just like a reading mm. of a new play around the same time. So while Faceless was in rehearsals, that was technically, I think, when I was supposed to have started writing something clean. Okay. I think that got pushed because yeah. it, it, 
Um, so after Faceless went up, that was sort of when I wrote my first draft. So 2016, 2017 was when I did most of the writing for mm. it. Um, and it was lovely because it was my first time. That was, um, that was a play that I was writing fully on my own outside of the classroom, outside of any mentorship. So it was, it was scary, but it was also, me learning to connect to my inner voice without any kind of exterior okay. noise. And then of course I got notes, yeah. um, but you know, notes in the real world are sort of less intense in some ways than in an academic setting where there's that kind of power structure, you know, it's peer to peer out in the real sure. world yeah. versus, you know, when, when teachers and stuff give you notes, it's like, Oh my <laughs> yeah. God, you're everything, yeah, yeah. you know? And so at least for me, that's how it was. Um, yeah. So there was something really sweet about bumbling along and and sort of falling down and picking myself up along that process and and just getting in touch with a you know I think there's something kind of masculine about the structure and tone of faceless which sort of fit the story that I was mm. trying to tell there's something very feminine about the story and the structure of something clean which was a really nice place for me to live in um feminine how, was, how do you mean feminine Le well, you know, you can think about it in just sort of the basic. I mean, I think so much has been written about like the Aristotelian story structure being a pretty male form, oh, okay. like where there's like a rising action, a climax and a falling action and how yeah. that like literally like Sarah Rule talks about how that like literally mimics like the male orgasm <laughs> um, yeah. and how. And so uh, some people like talk about that as being like a very like male classic, like There's you're like going a refractory to the, period. Yeah, I don't yes, exactly. That. You're going to the explosion point and then it downhill from there yeah. versus, um, versus I think a feminine is like a slightly more circular okay. and less, and less open, or sorry, more open ended mm. thing where it's like, you're not starting necessarily from like a catalyzing thing and going to like the end in the same way. Right. It's more like, it's more like we are moving in, we are cutting into a, a wave that is in motion and we are just looking at a portion of that wave. And so the ending doesn't really clear up that much. It, it gives a sense of a certain type of possibility and there is change that occurs over the course of the play, but we know that this is going to be a cycle and continue in that way. So um, yeah, I, I think that, I think it was Sarah Roll that was saying that, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I think she mentions it in her book of book of essays. Mm. Um, and she she talks about um the Ovidian structure of more like transformation and things like that. But um so that was just like a very pleasurable experience. And again, similarly with that play, something clean, I think when I started out to write it, I think I thought it was maybe about violation, mm. but I was kind of, you know, growing up and healing. And I was also in the process of falling in love at the wow. same time. And I realized that the play was in fact about healing and consent and intimacy and what it means to be in love. And and so again, like not to say that that play is not necessarily a love story in the classic sense. Yeah. And that story is like about a terrible, terrible assault, but there was yeah. so much intimacy and love put into that play because I think I was healing and changing my own relationship to the body and to sex and things at the same time that was happening. Wow. That's, I mean, that's really interesting, but in terms of that, uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're really coming to the, into these characters lives in the middle. I mean, and they're, it's, 
often you hear, I'm not going to say often, but sometimes you hear about um, the family of the survivor, but it's so rare that you see what it, the toll that it actually does to the family of the, I guess, the perpetrator. And you're kind of seeing that. I mean, it's kind of, uh, you don't know what the relationship dynamics were like before this happened, you know, before he went to jail. But you see that in the middle as he's about to come out, and it's it's not really pretty. It's like tough to communicate and all these things. How did you? Uh, was that a tough psychology to tap into? Like the romance, uh, the lingerings of a romance between a couple whose kid has you know gone to jail for this sexual attack. Yeah, you know, I think I just I conceived of it slightly differently. Like I didn't think like this is about the pair. I mean. Mm. I'm trying to think how to say it. Um, it's not about them. Specifically. I, sort of pitched, I pitched it as a, a coming of age story for a woman in her fifties okay. was how I initially pitched it to the theater. And so there are these circumstances that make her look at her life and question like everything, gender, sex, you know, you know consent, her relationship. There's a part of her that obviously somehow identifies on some level as a victim as well because of something because you know she's not letting her husband touch her and something a betrayal has occurred and I guess it was more you know thinking about and I've been thinking about this more uh lately but just um because I actually recently saw a production of something clean and I was thinking about it about how increasingly as I think about criminal justice and also just how to live in a world that is more of a collective than an individual and what it would look like to write to sort of have actual kind of restorative justice instead of just the classic prison industrial complex would be something along the lines of we have to understand that we are all potentially the mothers of survivors as well as the mothers of abusers Mm -hmm. right like we have to hold that. And, and when we move through the society, we are all contributing to a society that creates both victims of abuse and survivors of abuse, as well as abusers. And we're, that's just true. We're all like yeah. this, they both exist in our society. So we are, and if we are part of the society, then we are inevitably contributing to those circumstances. So what would it be if we thought less about like how to protect myself and and what if we thought less in terms of the individual and just being like what if I I I might I'm the mother of all of the survivors I'm the mother of all of the abusers and how do I hold those two things together Mm -hmm. and how can I work on um reaching and working with these people who have done these bad things and how do I work on uh, reaching and dealing with these people who need help and how can I do both? Because I think those are ultimately the questions we have to ask, right? Because we live in these societies where people are damaged and people are doing damage. And often the people who are doing damage were damaged. Right. So, um, I just was kind of interested in disrupting this idea that there are, you know, the, the good ones and the bad ones, the fallen and the not fallen, you know, it's like, we're all, there's, there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of healing. And um, I just thought we needed more nuanced conversations about it. And um, I started thinking of the idea after the Stanford. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Rape uh, case. Yeah, yeah. Because I, it, I saw a picture of him walking to Brock Turner, walking to court, holding his mother's hand. Oh wow. And I was just like, 
wow, what would that cognitive dissonance be to be that mother and to be a woman who, and know that you gave birth to a man who hurts women. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like, it's kind of like, um, cause that Joey character, I mean, that's, uh, he is, I thought it was interesting when he says, uh, something like I'm here for survivors. I don't, I don't give a fuck about predators, but from what you're saying, it's like, you have to think about that yin and yang. So, so something clean happens. And well, I think, oh, sorry, yeah, can no, I just ahead. jump in on that line? It's interesting you bring up that line because mm. that is a line that I've recently been thinking to myself that I do want to change because I think someone in his position would right. uh, would understand that a lot of predators have experienced abuse themselves. And so that again, it's an example of my blind spot when I wrote it when I was younger and had a different relationship to ideas of like restorative justice and stuff. And I think that consciousness around that has changed because I think a 24 year old when I wrote it in 29 has uh, in 2019 has different views probably than a 24 year old in 2023. Mm. So I've been thinking maybe about updating that line, that exact line, actually, because last I saw that I was like, that doesn't feel right to me anymore. When I read it, I didn't, I thought about it more as like a contrasting statement that Charlie can, and the reader can kind of go off of. And I think that it does adapt, but if you want to cut mm. it, it's up to you. I mean, I don't know. I, I, know I, I just what I've been thinking of. Yeah. Uh, okay. So then you do that. And that also has some comedy. You're talking about uh, that wooden thing that she breaks, which it looks like a <laughs> penis. That's funny. Uh, lots, lots of other things, which is good. Um, so then POTUS, is that um, that came? So you were writing that something uh, clean that came up. That was, I guess, in New York, like there were production productions, other productions as well. Making the change or making a transition from that into something that's like very uh, a farce. And has a lot of comedy. What that word? Do you? How do you feel about the word farce? What when you think about farce? Like, what does that word conjure up for you? Really? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm I'm not a scholar on this at all. So take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt. Okay. I was interviewed by someone actually who was studying farce <laughs> and who was I'm not studying it. Asking all these questions about like, have you read this thing? Have you read this thing? No, I'm like, a lay, I'm a lay person. <laughs> so yeah, it's a farce. Um, I think that there are certain tropes that I associate with farce, like a lot of slamming doors, mm. mistaken identity. Okay. It has to be high face, uh, high uh, paced, and um, you know, those stakes have to be life and death, or feel life and death to yeah. the characters in the play, and. There's also in a lot of classic farces or, or contemporary farces kind of rely on what I think are some sexist and racist tropes. A lot mm. of them, oh, yeah. you know, like I love noises off and, mm. um, and other farces. There's often a lady running around in her underwear <laughs> yeah. being like, Oh no, I'm yeah. naked, you yeah. know? And um, so I was kind of interested in seeing what of those I could take and subvert them. So I thought, well, could I take a woman and have her kind of running around partially dressed, but make it not sexy at all? And I thought, <laughs> oh, what if she is um, covered in blood in post-it notes? <laughs> or yeah. what if she has a breast pump attached to oh, her? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. you know, there's things like that. So that that was really fun. But I think it draws on all sorts of things. You know, there's a total comedy legacy. You know, there's um, Shakespeare and Moliere. And also Moliere was kind of, I, I believe, 
people are going to come for me no, if I okay. don't no, do that. But I think Moliere was like following Commedia dell'arte, which is oh, okay. like an Italian sort yeah. of thing. So there's certain archetypes that get pulled through. Um, and then, you know, there's like Oscar Wilde type yeah. farce. There's, I think a certain type of symmetry too. Like it starts with things are kind of well and it ends all well. There's like a button at the end. Yeah. And so again, I was interested in seeing, can I deliver a button that is maybe a verbal button and somehow speaks to the first moment of the play, but can I have changed it where in that final moment of the play, it's not funny anymore, you know? Oh, okay. Um, and so for me, POTUS kind of subverts the farce thing. It's a farce until it's not. Yeah. So, and the way I think about it in terms of writing it is that comedy is tragedy that we laugh at, yeah. especially high comedy. <laughs> and so with this play, it was, um, you know, you're laughing and you're laughing and you're laughing until all of a sudden you stop laughing because you realize, oh, it's not so funny anymore. That yeah. was the goal. No, that's that's really interesting. Uh, that in terms of that, I mean, uh, man, when she, when she's covered in blood, that <laughs> everyone lost it. Because uh, I saw that. I saw that uh, on Broadway. I saw that twice, actually. I really liked it. Um, yeah. How was uh, what was the experience, uh, I guess, working with uh susan stroman and you know being at the helm of this like what ended up being a really giant um play i mean how how was it uh, kind of uh what did you find that that experience was quite collaborative or did you i mean what was your sense behind that yeah it was so collaborative i think i was so lucky that everybody working on it had a real genuine love and devotion of the play and really want to do right by it so of course there were varying aesthetics and differences in opinion but everyone was like really committed to doing right by the play susan stroman is the classiest act on broadway <laughs> like, yeah. she's just she's just a force and a beauty and i think an extraordinary artist and because she's so seasoned and uh just because she's so accomplished the, I, I felt in such good hands. Yeah. So there was so much that I just didn't know going in. And there was so much like, so of course I was like making mistakes. Of course I could, I would do things differently, but she was so steadfast and so respectful of me. And so um, respectful of my work and just, just made me feel really secure. Yeah. And then uh, that cast, I mean, uh, Julie White, uh man when she says she says get off my dick god <laughs> i can't how do you think about like um the things and then vanessa william williams too and um you know everyone julian huff uh she's great she was like the biggest when i saw her i was like wow like what a seemed like a departure just in terms of that the gravity of that role and she's really the linchpin of that uh production in my mind but when you think about things like the word that sets everything off at the beginning like uh that four-letter word how do you think about which what that incident will be. I mean, is that, does that come naturally or do you think specifically like this is a word that will evoke emotion in a lot of different ways? So I started writing, I had sort of the idea for POTUS for a while, but I actually started writing words on paper after the, um, the tape was leaked about the pussy grabbing. Oh, comment. yeah. Oh, <laughs> I don't know how else to respond, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, we remember that moment. Mm. And it was interesting because I was watching, they, I think, you know, most, most, uh, most, whatever they're called, networks and things oh, yeah. can't say, can't say pussy right. on network until, yeah. until 
this happened. And then, you know, a presidential candidate said it. And all of a sudden all the networks were going, can we, can we say it? Can we say it? And they were saying it and there was like, I think the, if I remember correctly, the rules were changed basically so that they could report. It feels like that. It feels like TV. I mean, I never watched network television really, but when I, when I do come across it, it seems like there is more, there is less censored verbiage. Like people are saying like uh, the B word, which I hate uh, and a lot of other words. Uh, But that's interesting that you, you, you encountered that too. Yeah. And so I think I was, you know, there was all this foul language coming out of these people who were trying to run our country. And, and I thought, why is he allowed to say this? Right. And if I said it on television, I would be censored, but it's about my body, you know? And, and so I just started to think that that way. And I thought, what would be something that really (laughs) like, what would be the thing that if the president, like what would be like the worst thing that the president could casually say about a woman. Right. And, um, it just sort of came out. Um, then I started thinking that way, which is funny because actually um, in England, people say say yeah, that word way more casually and it's yeah. a little, a, a lot less in, considered intense than in the States. But it's one of the main reasons why theaters wouldn't, um, you know, do my play for a while. Oh, really? Um, and I, I got a lot of feedback from lit managers saying, you know, we love this, but we can't program it. Our, our, oh, man. You know? And I was like, you're watching Network TV. TV. Yeah. And these people are saying this about me, but you won't do my art. That's double standard. <laughs> right. And yeah. there's all these, you know, Edward Albee, Sam Shepard, David oh, Mamet, yeah. like yeah. all of these male playwrights who absolutely have foul language throughout their yeah. play. And I was saying, look, there's no graphic sex on my stage. There's no graphic violence on my stage. Really what this is, is women saying things that you don't like. Yeah. And if, if that is, that is really comes down to why people would be uncomfortable. Maybe that's exactly why you should program it. And so I was just really lucky that this extraordinary group of people were like willing to take the risk and were courageous to do that. Um, because it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a given. Did they have issues with the ass thing? Yes. I mean, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Who cares? I mean, yeah. Was... Well, someone, I did get a note once from someone saying like this, this plays more than foul language. There's references to someone said alternative sex. <laughs> and I said, you do know that anal sex is not alternative sex yeah. for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and, um, yeah, no, there, there were things like that, that were, uh, tricky <laughs> yeah sounds like yeah they need to come to 2023 all right so then uh from that i guess you said that uh the potus and the morning show like you said the genres are different um but it seems like uh i mean i guess i know the morning show you're not necessarily are you in politics or not you're in the politics of something different but you are definitely it is very political extremely political right so how does that uh um how do you how does what have you kind of learned writing on that? I mean, I know when you were working on, you know, side by side, being sleep deprived, it's probably a dis- different situation. But looking back at it now, um, I mean, do you did you enjoy? Do you enjoy writing on, um, like, being in a writer's room like that? That's collaborative. That's not necessarily something where you're at the helm completely, but you're like you're with others that are kind of part of part of a concerted effort to you know to do something. Yeah. 
I mean, I just, I learned so much about just television because I, I have developed pilots and things on my own, but to, this is a whole different thing when you're, it's like a show that is midstream that will be going up, you know, that was really, um, exciting and yeah. cool. And I, I learned a lot and it was definitely a relief to just sort of be in service to other people's vision than to be then like trying to come up with everything on my own. You know, I think that was really cool. I've always written alone and it was just mm. really lovely to be with a room full of brilliant people coming up with story together was so, so fun and be like, Oh man, you don't have to do this by yourself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. that's so much better, um, you know, in, in you know, in certain ways and other ways, you know, it is good to be able to like have a single vision, a single vi voice sometimes. And I, I can't imagine kind of workshopping a play in, in with lots of people until there was like a later point of development. But yeah, I learned a lot. Do you, um, do you think about writing for those actors like Crudup I like and Aniston and all those, or do you, um, are you just fixed more in terms of writing with others collaboratively, but thinking about the story rather than the character. Yeah. I mean, with this one, they're so ingrained as yeah. those actors playing those parts. I wouldn't be able to separate it. Yeah. Um, I think what's, what's cool. And I think this is something I'm just learning with TV and film in general, that so much can be done with just a look, oh, you yeah. know, if you have, if you have these, you know, wonderful actors, then they can accomplish so much with just a look at the camera. And sometimes you just need way fewer lines. And that's just something I'm learning just from working on features and, and things like that in general, just being like, oh, they're so good. You know, all you want is a close up on their face or something. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that's just a difference in medium in general. My experience of writing plays is often an aural one. I'm trying to hear the play. And when I'm working on TV and feature ideas, I'm trying to see it more, I think. So it's more of a visual thing for me. Where are you now in LA? Mm -hmm. How's that? I mean, that's that that's the land where people uh, people's first words are green light and showrunner and stuff like that. So how's, how's it like being kind of there from Oregon? Where you you know, at? it's interesting. I'm sure there are, you know, I kind of made that joke. But the thing is, like, I'm friends with some people who grew up in in Los Angeles, oh, yeah. and they are not like that at all. Like, there's an entire world out here that has nothing to do with the industry, and they're mm. just people living their lives in a very cool city that has, like, great food and great music and all the yeah. other, the beach, all these other things. Like, my friend who grew up here, you know, he doesn't know, he's not plugged into the the Hollywood, Hollywood yeah. industry at all. So he probably didn't even learn that word. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of things I like about it. I don't think I want to uh, be here forever. Um, I don't love the car culture and oh, yeah. um, the fires. You, you know, like every yeah. summer are, you know, I mean, that's all the West coast. It's Oregon too, but the fires every summer really freak me out. You know, what kind of music do you listen to? Um, all kinds of things. I mean, I'm super kind of all over the place and I'm also really bad with names. Like I'm not plugged into pop culture in any kind of yeah, way. Yeah, me neither. I'm not, I don't like it. <laughs> I have like the recent Florence and the Machine album. Mm, uh, okay. I was listening to a lot. I saw Brittany Howard, who was the front woman for Alabama Shakes. Oh, I yeah. saw her at the Hollywood Bowl and it was amazing. <laughs> the songs, the music at the end of POTUS, was that your, like, did you, uh, 
Because I think there's like Katy Perry and stuff. I mean, was that uh, planned originally or did that kind of come out of, you know, I guess Susan or, or someone else? Um, when I was writing the play, I kind of had my own version of like the playlist that's referenced in the play. It was like yours was like more punk, right? Uh, wasn't it? Uh, maybe. Yeah, I think it was probably a bit more yeah. punk, probably. But so I had my own, uh, you know, version of it. And then the sound designer put together a much longer version for the pre-show and um, and intermission and post-show type stuff. All right. Uh, well, uh, I really like, you know, really loved and like being familiar with, uh, with all your work. Uh, I think the TV stuff is really cool, but then also... The plays, and I think like your voice is really original, and you're giving um, you're giving a voice to characters that I think really deserve a voice, and I think it's important for people to be exposed to that, especially in the world that we're living in now, uh, in the past few years too. So, um, really appreciated talking to you, and uh, yeah, really appreciated you coming on. Can I ask um how how why you started doing this podcast and how it intersects with your degree, or if it intersects at all? I think it intersects a lot. Yeah, I started, um, so I was actually a, a, a Duke. I was in grad school. Um, and I was like, uh, I remember when I saw the inauguration um, when I was a Duke. And I that was not a good day. Uh, that was 2017, I guess, right? So then um, I started it because I, I noticed that my professors, faculty were like really interesting. But I didn't feel like, um, I don't know, being in class was like the right forum to go to have like a long form discussion so i guess it started off like that and then just being um really interested in the like you said the intersectionality between psychiatry and i guess film i which uh i i've really grown to see uh just being in the field um has been really interesting to me and i think there's a lot of parallels uh and i when i whenever i read something or i watch something i just think about um the context of like the context of mental health and what is their what is that character's mental health and how are they thinking about things and then i also think like the provider side of it is interesting too like there's a blend between being paternalistic and in interaction and then also giving autonomy to the person to live their own life so i've always found those things interesting i guess that's why i started it um and i guess it just it's evolved into talking i th honestly i thought i was going to talk a lot more with um like other psychiatry people but if you look at it it's a lot of uh it's like writers directors um actors and stuff i guess that's just the i i gravitate towards them so yeah but uh it's interesting and, it's, and when you graduate do you know what you want to do or I'll be, uh, yeah, so I'll be like an advanced psychiatry provider. So we do a lot of um, like the medication stuff, diagnosis stuff, the diagnostic stuff, but then we also do um, a lot of psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. So I imagine that I'll have my own um, practice. Uh, I don't know where I'm going to be. I don't anticipate I'll be in New York, but I might be. I don't know. We'll see. Just the longest you've been someplace because you've moved every year? No, I've only been here for, um, I guess, over a year I haven't oh, been right. here that long. For, for, and I was in uh yeah, I was in St. Louis before this. And yeah, I mean I've I've traveled to like a lot of um places that you don't really think of when you think of America if you're not from here, like Denver, Colorado, Salt Lake City, Utah, uh Durham, North Carolina. That's so funny because one of my best yeah. friends is from Durham, Cal Durham, oh, and yeah. uh my partner is from Boulder, Colorado. Boulder's awesome. I love that place. Uh 
Yeah. Do you ever go to visit in Colorado? Yeah. We go to visit his family yeah. a lot. Yeah. That's fun. All right. Well, this was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Hopefully your paths will cross at some point. I don't know if you ever come to New York, but if you do, um, yeah, let me know. And uh, yeah. Thank you good. so much. Uh, let me know when it's, you know, out in the world. I'll let you know. Thank you.